0: If we've not met before, my name is Kirk McDonald. Um, I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors here at the church, uh, and this morning I'm honored to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. A little church history <clears throat> for us this morning as we begin. If you go back and study... Uh, church history, particularly church uh, buildings and church structures, you will come to find out that in the early church, early church buildings and early church structures, actually did not have any seating at all. No seating. Stage up front, stuff around, but no seating. People came in, and essentially it was standing room only. You, you could only stand, and it wasn't until much, much later in church history, in, in the history of the church, uh, then they started to add later on pews and seating and and things like that. So you you might ask, uh, what happened? Well, it was around 1400 to 1500 when they finally started adding seating. Now, if you are a church historian, you will know that around 1400 to 1500 was the the protestant reformation so why do they start to add pews around the time uh, and seating around the time of the protestant reformation answer long sermons yes in jesus name long sermons they they started to exegete long passages of text like they had not before and because they were there for so long in the long sermon they needed a place to sit down and so thus thus pews uh, and seating kind of come into place now while the church was reforming it was still filled with sinners amen meaning that sinners were still in the church sinners still led the church and so here is what happened next churches begin to introduce the box pew anyone ever heard of a box pew before Okay, so nobody, Um, one person, very good. And so the churches began to introduce these box pews. And when I say introduce box pews, what I mean is the church began to sell box pews meaning this a box pew was like almost like a skybox in a stadium where you had your own spot for you and your family you were surrounded by four walls usually shoulder height separating you from the rest of the congregation these these box pews were in prime locations within the church sometimes these box pews actually had their own exterior entrances so you didn't have to go in the main door like all the common folk and sit in the free seating no 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 you and your rich family bought your own box pew and you had, you could like walk up a special sidewalk and come into the church and sit in your box pew with just you and your family. Some of those box pews even had fire. You had your own fireplace in there for when it got too drafty. And and so these box pews would be, would be sold. These box pews were almost like real estate in the sense that the owner, so if you bought your own box pew for your family from the church, um, it it was essentially like real estate in the sense that you could sell it to somebody else or they could be passed down uh, to your children. Some churches did not even have open seating. It was all box pews. And so they essentially became closed churches because once all the box pews were sold to, other, to all the families, nobody else could come in. And so again, just get that picture in your mind of, you know, okay, so... <clears throat> Y'all usually sit where y'all sit. Okay, let's just get that out in the open. Y'all usually sit where y'all so so but just imagine you have boxed in four walls around you with your own private door, shoulder height walls literally dividing you from other people in the church. That that's what was going on as they begin to introduce uh, this type of seating. So by God's grace, what the reformers hoped for was not only that the church would reform, but the church would continue reforming. So eventually uh, they took passages like our passage we'll be looking at today very seriously, and thus uh, the box pews begin to uh, fade away, and we really don't see them anymore. They're they're preserved in like really, really old historic churches, but nine times out of ten, ten times out of ten, when you go into a church, you're not going to see box pews anymore. And as you know, today in the church there actually is no more partiality because the prohibition of box pews has ended all divisions in the church and ushered in a state of unity (laughs) y'all are laughing well again if if you know your church history as soon as we got rid of the box pews you know what churches started doing they started adding balconies why did churches add balconies so that the people of color would have a place to sit because as soon as we got rid of that division, we decided we were gonna divide on other lines as well. So it, it wasn't just a, we're rich and we can afford the nice box pews. After that got put away, we continued to add more divisions in the church so that, oh, the, the white folks sit here and the colored folk have to sit up in, in the balcony. This is why in 1816, a group of black people withdrew membership from St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church and started the African Methodist, Methodist Episcopal Church because they were forced to sit in the balcony. Many other uh, denominations, predominantly black, began to pop up all over the place simply because they were not allowed because some churches didn't build balconies and just wouldn't allow people of color in their service at all. But now, as you know, we have done away with slavery. We got rid of all the Jim Crow laws, and now there's no partiality in the church whatsoever. The civil rights movement has ushered in a new age of unity in the church and there's no more partiality at all whatsoever. Sadly, people in the church insist on creating barriers and erecting walls, economic barriers, racial barriers, gender barriers, political barriers, you name it. Well, what do we do about divisions in the church? What do we do about partiality? What do we do with the fact that most people like to go to church with people who are like them? What do we do about that? Well, some have answered this way. Some have answered there is, there is no answer. It just is what it is people that look like each other and talk like each other and have the same political affiliations. And they're, they're just gonna congregate together and they're gonna do their own church thing and we'll do our own church thing over here. And just when Jesus comes back, he'll figure it all out for us. When Jesus comes back, finally, we'll, we'll all be together. But until then, we, we just keep on going. Oh, no, 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 church family. This is, not, this is not what the Lord has for us. If we're going to address divisions in the church, we must begin with the power of our unity. If we're gonna begin to address the divisions, address partiality within the church, we have to begin with what we are united in. We have to acknowledge and see the power of our unity. And what is the power of our unity? Here's my one main point today. The power of Christian unity is in the glory of Jesus Christ. So how powerful is the glory of Jesus? Well, it's really really powerful. So, if our unity is based in Jesus's glory, then our unity, our Christian unity should be unstoppable and there should be no partiality and there should be no divisions. If the power of Christian unity is in the glory of Jesus, how powerful is it? Well, it's super powerful. We are united in the glory of his death. It's sad that his death is because of us, but the good news is that it was for us. Amen. We 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 are united in the glory of his perfect life. It is now now been accredited to us, collectively us, we are united in the glory of, of his righteousness, of his holiness, of his goodness. We are united in his resurrection, in that that we were dead in our hearts and in, in, in our sin, but he has come and his resurrection has raised us up with him into newness of life. Romans 6, 5 says this, if we have been united, united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if those things, if those things, the glory of Jesus stays at the forefront, then there is no room for partiality. It's only when the glory of Jesus is removed from its proper place that partiality comes in. So we have no need to play favorites and we do not need to divide on those type of issues as long as our eyes are on the glory of Jesus. When our eyes are on the glory, There's no room for partiality. It it essentially kills partiality when our eyes are on the glory of Jesus. Now, today's text will confront us all. Today's text calls everyone out. It calls everybody, even the pastor, especially the pastor. It calls everybody out if you understand what James is getting at. The truth is we like people who are like us. We like people who can advance us in Some way. And now that is not intrinsically sinful, is it? It's not intrinsically sinful to like people that are like you, that that are relatively the same age, same income, maybe same political affiliations, maybe have the same hobby. It's not it's not a sin to like people who are like you. But every single person in this room, including the pastor, takes that one step further and essentially gives people who were like us or people who can advance us in our sinful hearts, we attribute or ascribe to them more value than we do somebody else. And so today in our text, we're gonna see that. We're gonna see this scenario play out to where some, someone comes in the church and somebody else comes in the church and value is placed on one rather than the other a greater degree of value. If you're taking notes, when we ascribe a higher value to someone rather than others, it betrays the unity we share in Christ. When you prioritize value, when you place value on this person or that person because of this thing or that thing, instead of realizing that we are all deeply valued by God himself, and therefore we should value others the exact same way that God values them, when you see that truth, then that kills partiality. It's only when we take our eyes off the glory that we let partiality come in. So James has been talking about what true religion looks like. If you If you know again church history, you'll know that uh, chapter divisions and verse divisions actually don't come into the Bible till much later. So as James is writing, he's not thinking, End of chapter one, <sharp inhale> chapter two, right? He's, he's writing a letter. He's writing a letter, and so there is a, a flow of thought that's going through this letter. And so in verses 26 and 27 of chapter one, he was giving us those three tests, the tests of true religion. Do you remember them? There was the test of speech, there was the test of care, and there was the test of purity. And so uh, what he's doing now is he's linked to link these sections together. He would essentially be saying something like, true religion, if if you're really a Christian, it's going to show up in how you talk if you're really a Christian, it's going to show up in how you care for people. If you're really a Christian, it's going to show up in your purity and then connecting now to chapter two. If you're really a Christian, it's going to show up in how you value people. If you're really a Christian, it's going to show up in how you treat people. And as a matter of fact, what he does then is he gives this this illustration of these two people coming in the church and somebody being valued over the other person. Just jump jump to verse two, look at it. He says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. So pause right there. Let me just remind you of their economic situation. Their economic situation was there was next to no middle class, next to no middle class meaning you had the wealthy landowners and then the poor who worked the land. Uh, You had the people that were in the palace, right? The the palace that sits uh, on top of the hill, overlooking the city, you you had those people. And then you had the people that lived in the inner city. Uh, They were merchants and craftsmen and shopkeepers and and things like that. So you have this big, giant divide between these two classes. And so what, what we see here is, uh, the first guy comes in. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, so this guy's got enough money to pay a jeweler to to get him a ring, and he has, I mean, I'm talking about a a custom fitted robe. I mean, it's it is nice, and he's looking good. He's showered up. He he's got a clean shave on. He's got his fancy robe. He's got his ring on, and he is cruising into. The church gathering well then you see this second guy and well he is not so much look at what it says about him and if a poor man in shabby clothing if you'll let your eyes jump over to chapter 1 verse uh, 21 chapter 1 verse 21 what it what it says here is that therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness that word filthiness is the exact same word in the greek as he describes the shabby clothing okay so filthiness describing sin in in, in 21 is the same word here shabby so you're to picture in your mind somebody who's possibly living on the streets or you're to picture in your mind possibly somebody who is uh, a day laborer. Maybe they only have one pair of clothing and they've been working all week long out in the hot sun in the only pair of clothes that they have with no means to really take care of themselves, wash themselves, and, and so you have a uh, c- tailor-made, custom-fitted, beautiful robe, and the homeless person, the day laborer, and they both come into the assembly. I want you to see these two men in your mind as they possibly this morning walking right down the aisle, maybe a a person who maybe slept behind the church last night. Picture in your mind somebody coming in in a, a really, really nice suit, and those two people come in. What happens in your heart as you see them, as you think about them? Verse three, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, okay, again, is it is it wrong to like people who are like you? Or, or maybe is it wrong to like people who could possibly advance you in your career? No, it's not, but look at what is happening. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down, at my feet. Here, look, look, here's what's happening. We're assuming that these two men have both recently been converted and are coming to church. That's, that's the assumption where James doesn't tell us that, but we're making that assumption from the text because they're coming into a Christian gathering on a Sunday morning. We're assuming that they're converted, but they're new because they don't know where to sit, right? They're, they're, they're trying to figure it out. And so here is, uh, again, a scenario. Maybe you would hear uh, the, the elders in the back discussing this, or, or, or maybe you would hear uh, two deacons, or, or maybe the, the guest services team. They, they might uh, have a conversation that goes something like this. Oh, did you hear that, that Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith is, is now a believer? Oh, really? The, the same Mr. Smith that owns all the camel dealerships, oh yes, him. oh, very nice. I, I hope that he will he will come. oh, h- here he is coming in the back door now. quick, get him a good spot. Get him a good spot. Oh, who's that guy behind him? Oh, I don't know, but make sure he sits away from the members, especially the the tithing members. Make sure he sits in the back, and as long as he doesn't disturb anyone, we might think about letting him stay that's That's the scenario That's the, that's the interchange. That's happening, and that type of thing happens in churches all the time. I come from a church background. Um, I've literally seen church members arguing over seating. Uh, You know, this is this is where we sit every Sunday, and you know that. You know, so I've been there. I've seen that. Maybe maybe some of y'all have have seen that uh, as well. But the thing that I've seen the most wasn't necessarily a conversation like the one that I just played out. It wasn't like, oh, this guy's rich, let's sit him up front. But here's what I've seen time and time again happen in churches. A guy comes in and he's an accountant or maybe he's an entrepreneur and the church is really excited to have this guy. And so because he's there and he's very successful in business, well, obviously then he should be the head of the deacon board. Oh, he's, he's great with Excel spreadsheets and the books. Let, let's put him in charge. Let's give him authority. Let's, let's let him go without any account of his spiritual life. It's just, he's talented. He's smart. So let's just get him in the position so that he can lead the church without considering, does this guy know his Bible? Does he know the gospel? Does he love his wife? Is he raising his children? Do we know anything about him other than that he's successful? No, he's successful. Let's put him in position. How many times have we seen that play out in churches again and again and again? And what ends up happening is that person, though they are talented in business, though they might be a great entrepreneur, do not have the spiritual integrity that they need in order to lead. And so they're given value over someone else. If you're taking notes, the church puts itself in great danger when it gives people value and authority based on external and worldly standards church after church after church has been destroyed. Church after church after church has been torn apart because the handsome businessman, because the skilled entrepreneur. Uh, you see, it's not just with artists. I mean, that, that's that's clear. That happens all the time, right? Somebody musically talented comes into the church and, oh, they can play, they can sing. Let's just get them up on stage. But it also happens with finance it also happens with business it also happens uh, in that same way now james gives his judgment on this type of behavior and he does it with uh, essentially rhetorical questions assuming the answer is yes look at look at verse 4 there's two kind of thoughts or questions there have you not then made distinctions among yourselves What's the answer? Yes, they have. If, if that goes on, you've made distinctions. Second, and become judges with evil thoughts. Yes, they've made distinctions and they've become judges with evil thoughts. Now, j- just, just for a moment, let me, let me just make sure that we're clear on this because I don't want us to misunderstand James. So let me give a quick uh, disclaimer. He's not saying that we cannot give respect where respect is due. So he's saying there should not be partiality but he's not saying we can't give respect where respect is due, meaning this, if an elderly person comes in the back of the church, a GCC man ought to stand up and give that lady or, or that elderly man their seat. Amen. So the GCC man doesn't say, oh, no, we, we show no partiality here. I'm not giving up my seat. No, 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 no. We, we give respect where respect is due. We, we, we respect government officials. We, we respect those in armed services, first responders. We, we show honor, respect to those people But that does not mean uh, that there is partiality. He says, have you not made distinctions? So what type of distinctions? What's happening here is they have sinfully made distinctions. Though they are united in Christ, though they are one in Jesus, though they share the same spirit, though their father is the one true God, they are now a part of the same family, sharing the same spiritual gifts, united as one And then all of a sudden they unnecessarily make distinctions. They unnecessarily ascribe a higher value to the one who is wealthy rather than the one that does not have anything. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, church family, is it wrong to judge others? Ooh, (laughs) is it? Maybe, maybe. It depends right that there are so so we know that uh, Jesus says, uh, Do not judge because when you judge you're going to be judged by that same standard, but in the same way the apostle Paul says, the spiritual person judges all things, even the deep things of God, first Corinthians. Two. So here we are given the context of their judgment. The judgment is not spiritual and righteous. It is evil. Why? Because they did not place value on others like God himself places value. They did not appraise the other person as God would appraise them. You're taking notes. When we do not value others the way God values them, it is sin. It's sin to not value others the way God values them. So when you find somebody that's that's like you, that you know maybe can advance you, that uh, you know maybe you identify with them, you're comfortable with their personality, and you begin to place a higher value on that person, that sin, that sin. That's what that's what is saying here. What's happening is they're placing this higher value on on this man because he is he is wealthy and again isn't that exactly what these prosperity teachers teach that monetary wealth is a sign of the favor of god and so because the wealthy man comes in oh god must just bless him and love him and we should all surround him because you know god's god's blessing him obviously because he's got money when we don't realize that just because you have money is not always a sign of blessing it could be a sign of god's judgment because what could be happening is money could be your idol and god could say fine have your idol And so it's not a sign of blessing. It is a sign of the judgment of God. Verse five, he says this, listen, my brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? Jesus identifies himself with the poor, does he not? Time and time again, all throughout the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. God does not show partiality here. So what is it? that we are united in? Do you see what he's saying here? Listen, my brothers, verse five again, look at it. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, meaning chosen for salvation, meaning God has decided to place his love on them because God values them, which he has promised to those who love him to be rich, in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Do you understand what this is saying? Do you understand how ridiculous partiality is when you realize how rich we all are and that we all share in those riches, that these riches, the riches of the kingdom, belongs to all of us, so it doesn't matter if you got a full bank account, low bank account, no bank account. We are all partakers in the kingdom equally. And so he's he's saying that this type of thing is just ridiculous. Again, if you're taking notes, it becomes really silly to show partiality to the rich of this world when all believers are insanely rich and share that same wealth. We share the wealth of the kingdom. Do you know how much wealth is in the kingdom? I don't think we really understand fully what that means. Now, here's what he says. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Meaning this, when a poor person comes to saving faith, it is because God first loved them. It is because God values them. Now, here is... Uh, an important side note to just kind of get into your into your minds. James here is giving an illustration centering on economic standing. He he's saying, "You, you see this? Here's the rich man. Everybody's giving him greater value than the poor man. You shouldn't do that. We're we're all partakers." In the kingdom, but in the same way, listen to uh, the apostle Paul as he gives this same instruction to not show partiality. But instead of economic standing, the apostle Paul will do the same thing concerning race or ethnicity. Look at Romans two nine through eleven. He says this: There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Meaning God doesn't show partiality, uh, distinction between um, Jewish folk and Gentile folk. There's no partiality in God. God values both of them equally. And so should we, or listen to the way uh, Peter said it when he was preaching, Acts ten thirty four says this, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in what? Every nation or in every nationality or in every ethnicity, you could say, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. That This is the Bible addressing partiality on all fronts, not just rich and poor, but black and white, red, brown, yellow, uh, uh, Republican, Democrat, uh, uh, pro-vaccination, no-vaccination. This is the Bible saying no partiality in the kingdom of God. And the reason that we should not hold partiality is because we are all partakers in the kingdom and the power of our unity is in the glory of Jesus. Amen. This is what this is what he's saying to us, verses six and seven. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, before we step away from... Uh, prosperity teaching uh, way over here into poverty theology. Poverty theology being um, you, the ones who are the most spiritual are the ones who've given all their money away. You know, they, they you know, sleep on like a on the floor because they, you know, they're too, they're so holy, they don't even need a bed and, you know, they, okay. So, so no to prosperity theology and no to poverty theology, okay? Um, so <clears throat> as you read this, you might think, well, James doesn't like rich people at all, uh, <laughs> but you have to understand the context of of what's happening here. He he would never say uh, that all rich people are bad. As a matter of fact, uh, Jesus himself called Levi the tax collector who was wealthy to come and follow him. In addition. There was uh, the, the rich man who allowed Jesus to borrow his tomb. That would be Joseph of Arimathea. So the Bible is not altogether against wealth or against rich people. It just seems that in this particular context, you had a, a church that was uh, didn't have a lot of financial means, and there were wealthy people that were taking him to court and, and, and suing him. Uh, again, <clears throat> the idea he means, for the most part, people with wealth, find that they have no need for God because they can provide for themselves. This is a warning here that we need to to look at. Meaning this, having a lot of money makes you feel like you're owed a lot, and so you have the funds to take people to court to get what you think you're owed. And so he's saying that we should beware of this. Again, please, church family, do not give yourself an escape hatch here. Realize where you are financially in the grand scheme of things. Realize that you are in the upper elite, the upper echelon of financial income in the world. And so when, when we read a text like this, we need to be very careful not to say, yeah, those are rich people. Because we're the rich ones. We're the rich ones. We need to take this very seriously. Now, I wonder if anyone in the room is thinking that I forgot about verse one or if you didn't even realize that I skipped over verse one altogether. (laughs) Maybe that's the majority of you. Verse one becomes the key to this whole text. Verse one essentially unlocks the whole rest of the, the illustration and unlocks the whole idea of where their unity comes from so that there won't be any Partiality. Look back at verse one. It says this, my brothers, show no partiality. That's how this whole section begins with this command that you should not show partiality, meaning you should not ascribe a higher value to someone rather than someone else based on worldly and exterior standards, is what he is saying. Now he says, my brothers, back in verse one, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? We would say it like this. We would say, show no partiality as you live out the Christian life. That's how we would say it. Maybe James would say, because he was just talking about true religion, maybe, maybe he would say, show no partiality as you walk in true religion or show no partiality as you live out the Christian faith, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he calls him this title that he ascribes to him. This is, look, this is not just a a throwaway title. This is deeply important and the very center of his argument for there to be no partiality. He calls him the Lord of glory. The Lord, show no partiality as you walk in your Christian faith because he is the Lord of glory that that's what he's saying so so glory then becomes the power for our unity and thus kills partiality. That, 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 what does this mean? It means that Jesus, he is glorious in himself because he is the Lord of glory, meaning that he is beautiful. He is righteous. Jesus is all inspiring. Jesus is lacking nothing. Jesus is worthy to be praised, and he rules over everything that is also beautiful and good and right and glorious because he is the Lord of glory. The title Lord of glory points us to the glory of Jesus as he has been exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father. That That's that's what this is pointing us to. This Lord of glory title is causing us to lift our eyes off of what we would try to like divide ourselves up in. Uh, the, the, okay, you're, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're pro-vaccination, anti-vaccination, pro-mask, anti-mask. Where are the dividing lines? This is saying, no, no, he's the Lord of glory. So lift your eyes up and put them on him. He is the Lord of glory. Of glory. It points us not only upward, but it points us forward to the glory that will come and be given to us when He returns. So instead of figuring out where are the dividing lines, who are the people that are like me, how can I place more value on this person than this person, and instead of drawing up and cutting up these dividing lines, we are to look upward at the glory of where He is and we're to look forward to the glory that will come. And when we do that, church family, that's how we get rid of divisions in the church. If you're taking notes, when Jesus' glory is preeminent, there is no grounds for partiality. It's only when the glory of Jesus ceases to be preeminent. It's only when the glory of Jesus is not the center focus. When there's other things that we're trying to focus on, when there's other places that we're looking to, when there's other things that we're trying to bring into the church, that's when divisions happen. That's when partiality takes place. But as long as the glory of Jesus is preeminent, there won't be partiality. There won't be partiality. I really, really, really want you to see this. I want you to to get this idea of Jesus' glory. So let me ask this question. How does faith in the Lord of glory turn us into impartial people? Okay, let me ask that question again. I want you to think about this with me deeply. Are you all with me this morning? How does faith... In the Lord of glory, because that's what he just said. Again, verse one, just just look back over it. How does faith in the Lord of glory turn us into impartial people? Well, what is at the center of Jesus' glory? So we looked up, we looked forward, but at the very heart, the very center of Jesus' glory is his vicarious and substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. That's the very center of of Jesus' glory. If you're taking notes, when the gospel is at the center, it kills partiality because we see that the price paid for all was Jesus' blood, so we all share the same value. Don't you see how his glory becomes the power for our unity? Because when Jesus goes to the cross, it is his precious, his priceless blood that is shed. And that precious and priceless blood that is shed pays the price for us all. All, for all of, it. not more for this person or more for that person, more for this person because they're rich or more for this person because they're white or more for this person because they live on this side of town or more for this person because they're on this you know, uh, political party. It is the same price paid for us all. Therefore, we all have the same intrinsic value. Yeah. It's his glory. It's his glory that is the power for our our unity. So the way to eradicate partiality, the way to eradicate partiality in your heart is not to muster up love on your own. We're, we're all again. We're all prone to like people who are like us. So if you're saying, okay, I want to obey this text. I don't want to be partial. I, I want to like people who are not like me. I, I want to. So so I just I've got to oh I've got to muster up love to like this person. Well, that's that's absolutely not it at all. The way to eradicate partiality in your heart is not to muster up love on your own. It is to focus on the love that Christ has shown you in the cross and the love that Christ has for that other person, right? It's, oh my, I, I am shocked that Jesus loves me. Are you shocked that Jesus loves Because I know me. So I'm super shocked that Jesus loves me and you should be shocked that Jesus loves you. And so there, there's a sense that we can focus on, I, I can't believe that he shed Like he thought I was valuable enough to shed his precious blood for me. And this other person who I have nothing in common with, I don't agree with on hardly anything at all. They don't look like me. I don't know their backstory. I don't, this person is so different from me. But Jesus has shed his precious blood for that person too. Therefore, no partiality. This is what he is driving us to. So the question is not, church family, are we showing partiality? That's not the question. (laughs) Again, don't give yourself an escape hatch on this deal. The question is not, are we showing partiality? The question is, who are we showing partiality to? The question is, who are we placing a higher value on? What type of of person are you placing a higher value on? If we're getting right down to asking some really difficult questions, you, you might ask, do black people make me feel uncomfortable? Do white people make me angry? Do vaccinated people just make, oh gosh, I can't stand those. Unvaccinated people, I mean, they're just the biggest idiots. I can't believe. It's not who are you showing, it's not if you're showing partiality, it's who are you showing partiality to? Do you place greater value on those of your same political party? Do you place greater value on those of your same skin color? Do you place greater value on those who are uh, around your age, make around the same money? Uh, they've got 2.5 kids just like you do. They, they live in that neighborhood that is close to the place that you all like to go to. Who, who are you placing value on? And is it equal value across the board. I pray that today would be a day of collective repentance. That we would pray, oh God, forgive us for not valuing people the way that you do. May that be our prayer today. That we would get honest with ourselves and really search our heart and see that the reality is we do place higher value on some than others. That is sin that we need to repent of, that we need to confess Church family, one day, we will all sit at the table. One day, one day, we will all sit at the table. I'm referring to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that table. When Jesus returns and we're all sitting, feasting at the table with him no matter what side of the aisle you come from, no matter what background you have, no matter what skin color you have, we will, we will all be seated at the table. And church family, make no mistake, there will not be uniformity in the kingdom of God. We're, it's not gonna be a bunch of white people, okay? It, it's gonna be every tribe, every tongue, from every background, all seated at the table. That's coming, That's coming, church family. There will be no partiality when that comes. There will be differing skin colors. There'll be different genders. We'll even have different roles in the kingdom that is to come. But any difference that we have will not create division because the glory of Jesus will be fully and finally seen and it will destroy all division everywhere. And there will be no partiality, all equally loved by the father. And so let us all strive to see that now. Remembering this, the power of Christian unity is in the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, forgive us for our partiality. Forgive us for placing a higher value on some rather than others. Forgive us for our self-righteousness because that's where partiality comes from. Forgive us of our self-righteousness Forgive us for giving special attention to those who are just like us, special attention to those that we believe can advance us. Root out partiality in my heart. Root out partiality in the hearts of the people of Gospel Community Church, and let us be a place where there are no divisions and where everyone sits at the table. ask these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.